Welcome to episode 95 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast and the first of 2016. We are back uh, after a two-week hiatus, uh, one week for those of you who uh, got our uh, bonus episode, uh, uh, but we are uh, full of energy and enthusiasm and delighted to have uh, with us uh, a guest commentator, uh, Nick Weaver, a researcher uh, on computer security with the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley. Uh, uh, welcome, Nick. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, also with me, uh, Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. Michael, uh, any interesting uh, adventures over the uh, the holiday? If you count sitting at my desk working, Ow. yes. Oh yeah, you have a big breach or, case. You're or working. Unfortunately, a, no. Yeah, you, you're working a big breach case, if I remember right. Uh, yes. Uh, so, uh, my condolences. Uh, Alan Cohn is here, uh, uh, formerly with uh, DHS uh, Policy, now of counsel at Steptoe. Welcome, Alan. Thank you. Maury Shank is with us. Uh, uh, Maury is the former managing partner of our London office, now an advisor to Steptoe on technology and cybersecurity issues. He's also a private equity investor, director of technology companies. Is there anything, Maury, that you don't actually do in this space? Um. I'm not a cocktail waiter. <laughs> All he also right. Speaks about ten languages. Yeah. Have any of us been cocktail waitresses? No, th- thanks, Stuart. Uh, I, I don't have the profile you do, yeah. but I, I try to do a few different things. You absolutely do, and 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 we never mentioned the fact that you're also a published novelist. Um. Yeah, and I'm I'm trying to. Trying to get a second one published. Oh, so. excellent. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I enjoyed the first one. It was uh, full of insights into the business climate of China, among other things. Uh, uh, all right. And I am Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So why don't we get started? Because over the hiatus, uh, uh, Santa really did come, uh, uh, as uh, uh, Michael said in one of his memos to our clients, uh, Santa must be real because the Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act, uh, uh, now known as the Cybersecurity Act, uh, was uh, uh, tacked onto the uh, omnibus and passed, uh, signed by the president. It is now law of the land. Uh, um, and we know it uh, must be a good thing because Justin Amash, the ineffable uh, Republican from uh, Michigan, uh, has denounced it uh, and said he's going to introduce a bill to repeal it. Uh, good luck with that since it passed by enormous margins in both houses. Uh, uh, but, um, Michael, you took a look at that. Uh, for our listeners uh, who, uh, like you, only pay attention to legislation after it gets actually adopted, uh, what does it do? Well, interestingly, <coughs> even though all the focus uh, over the past year or more, really, has been on the, the parts that would authorize sharing of threat information, one of the most significant things, Section 104, which authorizes private companies to monitor their own information systems or those of other entities that they contract with for cybersecurity purposes may not sound like a big deal, but it is potentially a big deal because uh, even though that sort of monitoring was authorized under ECPA, if you had the consent of your employees, there are 13 states that require 
the consent of all parties to a communication before you can intercept their communications. And there has been some concern among companies that you couldn't really do effective cybersecurity monitoring without running afoul of at least some of those laws. Yeah, they were most... The Cybersecurity Act of 2015 does away with those concerns. My impression is they were mostly doing it, but they were worried that they were actually going to end up with a a lawsuit at some point. Uh, And I think you're right, this puts that to rest. And I, as a practitioner in some degree, respects, this is hugely important, that you run a network monitoring system right, you actually make the NSA blush, that uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Labs records raw traffic for three months crossing their network border, and they need it for incident response. And being able to know that you're safe under cybersecurity monitoring rather than just the catch-all, notified your employees, etc., is hugely important. Yeah, you know, I, I was interesting. There's a whole bunch of laws that uh, now that say you can't demand that your employees give you their social media uh, uh, credentials and logins. Uh, um, but, in fact... Uh, companies get those all the time. They, 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 they break the, uh, uh, the SSL encryption, uh, at the border, uh, because they have to inspect the traffic to make sure that it's not exfiltrating, uh, intellectual property. Uh, so there was always a tension under state law between, you know, can you do this for security purposes or are you subject to this, this new, um, enthusiasm for, uh, uh protecting, uh, the privacy of logon credentials? This legislation probably does override that uh, if you're uh, doing the monitoring for cybersecurity purposes. Um, the, the other thing that I thought was interesting here, and, and I hadn't focused on it till Oren Kerr wrote a nice uh, uh, piece about it, uh, is it allows ISPs to monitor their networks, uh, uh, the things that are passing over their networks, uh, uh, for cybersecurity purposes. Before that, there was a Title III exemption for protecting your own business. Uh, but it is it is considerably broader to be doing it for cybersecurity purposes because you might not be protecting yourself. You might be, be protecting other users. And I I predict that the FCC's uh, Public Safety uh, Bureau will start pressing people to do uh, ISPs to do more in that regard. There, there's also a provision that allows companies to uh, operate so-called defensive measures on their networks. Um, which sounds good to proponents of hacking back uh, who will remain nameless at this point, but uh, it, it's not quite as broad as it as as you might like. But but it does at least uh, create the authority to take steps and and use software tools to uh, to mitigate a threat on your network. It, it does not allow you to uh, take steps that destroy or render unusable somebody else's network. Um, but it does allow you at least to do something to mitigate the threat. So maybe I'm, the scope of that is. maybe I'm missing something, but I don't see any reason why that needed to be federal preemptive legislation. I'm just not aware of a restriction that would have prevented people from uh, using defensive measures on their own network that didn't have an effect on other people's network. Uh, um, maybe when it was originally drafted, it had... Uh, a kind of sneaking up on hackback uh, uh, element to it, although that was never particularly uh, useful as as I read it, even in the early drafts. Uh, uh, but by the end, I'm not sure this defensive measure thing actually changes anything. 
Yeah, I, I can't see what it adds uh, in the end, but my hunch is you're right that maybe there was a desire to, to try to broaden the authority, but they, they couldn't quite get there. All right, so the the next topic that also had developments over the holiday, uh, um, uh, mainly things that didn't happen but not entirely, was uh, uh, the complete uh, mess that now is the safe harbor and EU data protection rules as they apply to uh, uh, U.S. intelligence programs that are they're dependent on them. Uh, two things, uh, uh, the European Commission was insisting it was going to get a, a deal by the end of the year. Uh, it didn't. Uh, uh, but it did adopt a, uh, uh, or at least reached a compromise on uh, how to punish people who violate uh, data protection rules. This is the new data protect- protection regulation the government's been working on. Uh, and they seem to have agreed on massive, but maybe not quite as massive, fines um, for violations of data protection on the order of 2% to 4% of global gross revenues, uh, which if you're Microsoft is close to $4 billion, and if your Google is more than $2 billion, that's a lot of money. Uh, and without the safe harbor and with the data protection authorities now empowered to go around uh, uh, launching cases within a month, um, it's going to create a, a real concern on the part of governments, a part of uh, uh, companies that are moving data about whether they're going to retroactively end up facing sweeping liability. Yeah, this is a remarkable development, Stuart. It's, um, you know, the fines are just one of the many things that the new data protection regulation does, assuming, and it's supposed to be adopted in the next month or so formally and would take effect two years later. Meanwhile, you know, first you've got the safe harbor uncertainty, but that's going to be replaced with new uncertainty in two years when this is adopted. The fines you mentioned, huge jurisdictional expansion. So now European data protection rules apply directly to companies outside of Europe that um, are selling goods and services into Europe or doing um, monitoring of EU persons. It establishes EU-wide data breach notification requirements, and it extends the so-called right to be forgotten from just search engines to any data controller. So, um, and it does a number of other things as well. It's it's rather remarkable. Maury, one of the things that I find puzzling is um, this whole data embargo uh, nonsense that the EU has been pitching for for. 20 years. Oh, we can't let the data leave because you might have an inadequate law and we don't want our data governed by the law of the country that gets the data. They've now asserted that they can regulate the data even if it's sitting in Kazakhstan. Uh, so why do they also need a ban on exports of the data since they're going to insist that they have authority to regulate it whether it's exported or not? You know, a cynical explanation is you <laughs> don't expect EU regulators to be consistent, but um, I think they would say that these are two different issues. One is, you know, data that begins its life in the EU, and um, this is the whole thing in the Schrems Facebook case, is data that's in the EU being sent outside. Uh, I think the, the issue of cross-border jurisdiction is to get companies that started by operating outside the EU, and when they do certain things via their websites with EU 
um, residents, they have to follow certain rules. And I, I think they are different issues. Yeah, maybe. I, I think that, you know, under, under the trade rules, you're supposed to ordinarily do the least trade interfering effort to you know, measure, adopt the, the least trade interfering measures necessary to achieve your goals. And there's no doubt that a data embargo is hardly the least um, a trade uh, impactful way of assuring the privacy of Europeans if it is permissible to regulate the data once it leaves the European Union. Now, maybe maybe they don't actually have confidence that they can regulate that, uh, which is probably prudent. Uh, but it does seem to me they've opened themselves up for the first time to an actual challenge on the ground that, that they've chosen the most protectionist way to deal with the problem. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to convince German and other similarly conservative data protection authorities of that as a, you know, practical measure. As a trade claim, do, do the trade laws go so far as data flows? I'm not sure. That would be an interest. It's an interesting argument, though. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll, we'll see. I, I, listen, this is such a mess that every argument is going to get uh, rehearsed uh, because um, what we're facing now is years of massive uncertainty in which, in two years, the stakes of uncertainty go through the roof. I also think it's worth highlighting what Maury said about the right, the expansion of the right to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. You're now taking steps cl- Away from just the the um, the search engines and the aggregation of public data into kind of the business model of many of these uh, of many of the companies that provide many of the good the the services on the internet, particularly those that offer them at uh, free or discounted prices because of the benefits they get from collecting the data. Um, now you're getting regulations cutting at the ability of individuals to opt themselves out. Uh, of those types of uh, of products or companies, uh, and that could have very uh, wide-ranging impacts across the range of uh, kind of Internet-driven businesses. Yeah, well, I, you know, and not just the business model, unless you think that the First Amendment is an American business model. It is, it is this government censorship saying, take that true fact and stop repeating it. Uh, uh, and... Uh, uh, you know, my cynical, uh, I don't think you can be too cynical about the, the mm-hmm. European governments, uh, uh, but uh, I am quite confident that the right to be forgotten is going to be of great value to French ministers who want their last girlfriend forgotten mm-hmm. uh, and of very little value to ordinary people. Uh, it'll end up as just another tool to to get people that they don't think deserve to talk to shut up. Another cynical, stupid question on data embargoes. Mm-hmm. Um, do the Europeans honestly think that keeping Facebook data in Ireland would prevent the NSA from asking for it? Well, they, they want to have that fight. And, of course, uh, Microsoft is having that fight, saying if, if we put the data in Ireland, it's not available to the U.S. Uh, on the other hand, for criminal, there's MLATs. There's no MLAT equivalent in Ireland. Right. And I, could well, there is an MLAT, but we have an MLAT with uh, Ireland, but we no, don't. No, I don't mean do an it. MLAT equivalent for, for surveillance. security. Yes. Um, could uh, the U.S. compel Facebook to have their data embargoed in the U.K.? Uh, could the EU do that? No. Could the U.S. say we don't want our data to? Go to the UK? I'm sorry. I'm, no, I'm not, okay. so that the U.S. says, Facebook, your European data, don't keep it in Ireland, keep it in the U.K. 
Ah, yes, well, I think they probably could It would could have to that. be Facebook that would cho- choose to do that, but I think the same European law would apply. But the thing is, is there's much more friendly relationships with the British intelligence in terms of basically right. rubber stamp exchange kind of thing. So if the data is in the UK, it might as well be considered in the NSA hands. Well, that, uh, that's, that, that would be your view, Nick. Uh, uh, I'm willing to bet the UK wouldn't say that, but I, 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 I think you're, you're right that it is uh, much more likely that the, the GCHQ would use its authorities to get data because they're highly likely to be interested in the same topics that the U.S. is interested in, including terrorism, um, and then they could share it once they got it. Or trade issues or... Uh Ah, no, not with Israel. I, that I, all falls I, under the compelled data stuff. Believe me, when Boeing <laughs> is going up against Airbus, you oh. are not going to want to rely on the Brits for U.S. intelligence purposes. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> okay, um, and uh, uh, the encryption issue did not go away. If anything, it got uh, more complicated. Uh, there, the um, uh, the FBI is. Reframing its uh, arguments for doing something about encryption, uh, uh, it made it into the GOP uh, debates, uh, and interestingly exposed a lot of differences of opinion uh, among the uh, um, GOP candidates for president. Uh, uh, and um, several states decided that they were going to get into it by requiring encryption, as opposed to requiring that the encryption be broken, and that. We'll get to the foreign governments in a in a uh, minute. Uh, Michael, what did the states do? Yeah, this this was earlier uh, in 2015, but New Jersey and Connecticut uh, both adopted requirements for health insurers to use an encryption for uh, health related information uh, and information about their uh, their their insurance. Uh, Connecticut also went went even farther and, and imposed a bunch of different data security requirements uh, for health insurers as well as for state contractors. Uh, so really following the Massachusetts model of, of starting to uh, specify the sorts of data security measures that companies are expected to follow here on a, a narrow sector of the economy, but still it, I think it shows a trend in, at the state level to start getting much more prescriptive than, than Congress obviously has has been willing to get at the federal level. Yeah, oh, I, 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 for sure. And and frankly, you know, I read over those uh, requirements and they didn't look shocking. My guess is that in six years they're going to look a little creaky and outdated, uh, which is the problem with adopting these very technology-specific solutions. Yeah, well, some of them are, I mean, you know, I think they're pretty general, actually. Uh, you know, the most specific they get is to re- refer to firewalls and software patching, um, maybe multi-factor authentication. But I think those things will still be around in, in six years. Yeah, well, the the, the, the story of uh, computer security is no security measures can ever be dropped. You just have to add more on every, uh, every time. Uh, um, the... Debate over encryption was really internationalized, though, over the last uh, month or so, and I thought this was interesting. China's got a new law, um, and, and there's a there's a there's a theme to this. Uh, China has a new law that that requires a lot of cooperation, but doesn't require a backdoor 
in hike verba. Uh, it just requires you to cooperate with them, and later they could probably interpret that as requiring a back door, but it doesn't say that. Uh, Brazil, uh, uh, well, actually, Maury, you, you followed the China stuff. Do you agree with me about that? Yeah, I do, although I saw one analyst today who said that the cooperation requirement says that you're going to have to turn over encryption keys in China, um, which, you know, if you're Apple or Google and the keys are on the device, um, I'm not sure what that means. If there's no backdoor, it's an individual user thing. Um, so it's a pretty unclear situation. I saw a similar analysis of the U.K. law that's been proposed, which is also just a cooperation law um, saying that it will require, you know, um, some kind of encryption key turnover or something. So it's it's a very muddy situation. And, you know, I think that's that's the theme of this, is that a lot of governments have kind of crept right up to the edge. Uh, they got they got chalk on their cleats uh, on this one. I'd uh, say it's over the edge. You think that, they're over. That from a technology point of view, if you require a provider to either provide plain text or provide the encryption keys, you are mandating a backdoor or weaked or and, non-existent and, and, encryption. Pretty clear they can they can take that view. They don't have to, but they can take that view. Uh, and government after government has indicated a willingness to kind of pursue people and then to back off if the heat gets too much. Uh, they saw that Pakistan and BlackBerry, after a big spat, kissed and made up and decided that, the, according to uh, BlackBerry, that uh, they weren't going to have to provide encryption keys and they could still do business in Pakistan, but that was a Well, it's different. Experience. BlackBerry is actually designed to be wiretapped from the get-go. Their architecture is wiretap friendly. What Pakistan wanted was bulk access to the communication rather than targeted access, and BlackBerry drew the line at bulk access. Okay, and Brazil. Um, they, the, the WhatsApp was given a uh, order to provide uh, uh, information about WhatsApp communications uh, by some uh, uh, pretty serious uh, organized crime groups uh, down there, and they said, uh, as they say here, we can't. We designed this program so we don't have access to that. And the judge said, well, how about this? How about you don't do business here for 48 hours? Uh, uh, now, I think WhatsApp has like a 93% market share in Brazil. Uh, and so it, uh, quite predictably, within 12 hours, everybody was screaming and the, the Court of Appeals said 12 hours is enough. But that initial judicial reaction, I think, tells you where governments tend to be on this. They they say, you you provided this and now you have a social responsibility to give us access to the information. Um, I, if I were the Silicon Valley companies, I'd feel like, you know, there are eyes out uh, uh, just beyond the firelight and more and more every time I look up. Uh, uh, this doesn't feel like it's um, it's actually coming out Silicon Valley's way. Why do you think Silicon Valley types were so quick to react to Paris and uh, San Bernardino calling basically for preemptive, preempting the arguments for backdooring encryption? The other thing is, is I think we'll discuss this later, the big problem is actually metadata arbitrage because metadata is often more valuable than the message itself. I want to come back to that. Let's just finish up two things that, that we ought to cover. Uh, uh, 
it was a big um, a couple of uh, weeks for regulators. Uh, uh, the CFTC came out with a big new set of cybersecurity regs, and then every regulator under the sun whapped somebody upside the head. Uh, uh, Alan, did you look at the uh, CFTC rule? Yes, and it's interesting. You know, so the CFTC, um, these were amendments to their um, system safeguards rules, um, but they were amendments to add in uh, certain types of requirements. The, the most interesting and the one that's gotten the most attention are the requirements for um, for cybersecurity testing, five types of testing, vulnerability testing, penetration testing, controls testing, uh, security incident response plan testing, and enterprise uh, technology risk assessments. These are kind of some of the first rules to to move into the space of not just uh, setting out a, a floor of activities, but actually to go into the requirement so of testing. I, I thought the, the penetration testing is the one that probably is going to create the most anxiety because a lot of the other stuff you can do just sitting at your desk. You could, uh, but penetration testing requires a different attack every time. Uh, and what I thought was really interesting is the standard. They said you have to do penetration or actually any of the testing has to be at a level that will assure that you have identified any mechanism by which your system could be compromised. So basically they're asking for a guarantee that you have found every single hole in your system. This, you know, uh, is a very broad standard. Yes, in a sense, um, I mean, it could be read to set up a strict liability uh, regime. It's interesting. I mean, in a, if you see what the what the CFTC is going at, they're requiring that independent uh, contractors come in, do some of this testing, do it from both outside the network and inside yep. uh, the network. Um, so it's very aggressive in its requirements for the for the testing. But but the it will be interesting to see how the the guarantee is interpreted. I think in it's a backdoor security standard uh, and a very high security standard. Uh, um, and we're going to be seeing a lot of action on that front in the long run. Uh, Michael, I know you looked at all of these, uh, uh, the FTC and HHS uh, uh, beating people up for COPPA violations, HIPAA violations, and the like. Uh, what's the, the one that you would point to as most likely to uh, change? people's view of what they need to be doing? Uh, probably the, the uh, COPPA settlements, because this, this was the first time uh, I think that app, app developers uh, who make apps for that are directed at kids have been dinged for collecting information in the form of persistent identifiers. So, you know, you're not just on the hook for following COPPA if you collect what we would all recognize as personal information from children. But if you collect persistent identifiers, any, any information about their device that, that carries over time so that you can identify a particular device that's engaged in activity, you've got to follow the COPPA rules about getting parental notification, uh, making sure that your privacy notices contain certain information and things like that. Um, and COPPA has some pretty steep penalties, $16,000 per violation, uh, depending on how you uh, define a violation that can that can add up very quickly. Well, I've, so I think I've, that's probably 
biggest uh, change of terrain out of all the regulatory action. Yeah, I can't help suspecting that half the apps are written by people who are covered by COPPA, uh, and and they produce, you know, if they produce $50,000 worth of revenue, everybody is kind of surprised and happy. Uh, you can't comply with COPPA uh, with a $50,000 gross revenue budget. Uh, um, so my guess is a lot of kid-focused apps just go away. Basically, any kid-focused app that uses advertising... Yeah, it's, t- it's toast. Yeah, because all the ad li- libs are centered around that. Uh, only Apple's has any notion of user privacy at all, and that has an explicit opt-out. So, uh, Alan? I was just going to say that um, that not to overlook the HIPAA settlements, because in the context of the data protection mm-hmm. uh, re- regulation and the comments about uh, breach reporting, uh, there were two uh, settlements announced. Both of them were the result of self-reporting under the under uh, breach reporting requirements. Uh, self-reporting and, and pay seven hundred fifty thousand. Well, that's the thing. Then prompts that then prompts an investigation, and that then prompts a uh, uh, a fine. Now, one of them was a you know seven uh, breaches over the course of a couple years, uh, but one was a single breach that was just a, a an individual clicking on a on a phishing email that resulted in malware being introduced into the system. Oh, grim. Uh, okay, uh, last topic, uh, the CFAA and what is uh, unauthorized access continues to uh, uh, confound the courts. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, what do these new cases mean? Well, one of them, uh, federal court in Wisconsin, uh, decided that an outside consultant who deceptively posed as a company employee to, to gain greater access to a third-party data system had exceeded his authorized access to uh, that third-party system under the CFAA. Uh, and that's been really the focus of division among the courts is the, the meaning of exceeding authorized access. Uh, and so I think that was, that was I think, a pretty uh, straightforward case. More interesting one is pending in the Ninth Circuit, uh, and they had uh, oral arguments last month, uh, and that's a case involving um, Facebook, which actually had gotten a cease and desist order against a company that was accessing Facebook uh, to to gather information from Facebook users. Uh, and when it violated the cease and desist order, Facebook said that it violated the, the CFAA, and I think that's going to be the central issue before the Ninth Circuit, uh, because there's this view out there that, you know, if you don't violate some sort of technical restriction on access, then you haven't really violated the CFAA because the CFAA is, is directed at hackers. And just violating a, a term of service or some other kind of rule isn't isn't hacking. Uh, I think this decision will probably um, uh, reject that view and find at least where you've got a clear restriction in here in the form of a court order to violate that really is to um, to exceed authorized access or to or to gain uh access without authorization whatsoever. Not to be too cynical about it, but uh, you can usually get the courts to come down hard on people who violate court orders. Uh, so maybe that will be the uh, principle that resolves the case. There you go. All right. Uh, so let's jump to our uh, interview with Nick Weaver. Uh, uh, Nick uh, has been contributing to lawfare uh, for the last six months or so. Uh, and uh, uh, he comes to it from a 
privacy protective civil libertarian point of view, but uh, one that has some technological sophistication and maybe an understanding of why uh, NSA may, might be doing some of the things it's doing, uh, why it makes sense from a counterterrorism point of view. So I thought they were uh, interestingly balanced and satisfying to nobody, uh, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, I, it, and, and so maybe I'll just start out. You You talked about the advantages and the disadvantages of bulk surveillance, uh, why you thought it was a good idea if you were an intelligence agency and why you thought it was a bad idea if you were somebody else. Uh, maybe you could just lay out your thinking on that. Well, to start with, um, my research area does focus on a lot of privacy, like Silicon Valley privacy issues and the like. But another big aspect is network intrusion detection and network censorship. And the difference between network intrusion detection, network censorship like China does, and bulk surveillance is there aren't two different sides of the same coin. They're the same bloody side. The tools are the same. You can probably download from GitHub the starting point that the NSA used for their bulk surveillance system in Lockheed Martin's Vortex project. Mm. Um, Bro <coughs> IDS apart from not working on symmetric link or asymmetric links, is actually as powerful, if not more powerful, than what the NSA has deployed operationally. Well, I think it's sort of understood, or at least it should be understood, that when you're on a network that is being uh, aggressively secured, um, you really have just no privacy whatsoever. And as we talked about earlier, because if you create any privacy um, dark spaces, the guys who are trying to exfiltrate data will use those dark spaces to get their data out. Uh, isn't that reasonable uh, from a point of view of security? Yeah, and partially that um, what ends up happening is you want to identify people on the network. And this is one of the things that the intelligence flow is really good at. Capture all, identify all, attack by name. But in order to get that flow to work, you well, have actually, to. But actually, on, when you're doing it on a network, you're not to, even if you know them by name. What you really want to know is: is he behaving in a consistent way, or has he changed his pattern of behavior? Uh, and, and that allows you, once you bring that to bear on the. the broader network to say, is there somebody who's acting like a terrorist that we've never seen before? It's actually more <coughs> retrospective than that. That in really what it is, is the best way to think about it is pulling threats. You start with some piece of information and you follow where it leads. So you, um, you know this person clicked on this link at this time using a VPN. Who is he? What's right. his Facebook account? Um, now, now we're talking about um, uh, counterterrorism, or are you talking about network uh, security? Uh, this is not counterterrorism. This is more just general intelligence surveillance. Okay. Intelligence surveillance is far more than just counterterrorism. Um, it's such a powerful tool that just you use it for everything. Right. Um, and I want a network which doesn't enable bulk surveillance but I will be the first to admit if I was in charge of the NSA, I would have built the same capabilities. I just would have done a much better job of it. 
<laughs> well, uh, maybe. I, uh, I can give you the bug reports. Okay. Uh, there's uh, three or four major architectural flaws in how they implemented things. Okay, interesting. So then l- let me ask. We've talked a little bit about how it's the tools are created for perfectly valid reasons. Uh, you need to be able to do this on your network in order to deal with uh, threats on the network. Uh, there are law enforcement reasons to uh, to do all these things. Uh, bulk surveillance works, and it's necessary, and the tools aren't going away. Um, as a civil libertarian, what is your solution to that problem? Encrypt everything all the time, always, because the problem is, is it's too easy. That if I was some foreign intelligence outfit, I'd have little plug-in air fresheners at that Starbucks over in DuPont Circle that goes and says, oh, this is who you are. I identify you passively. I identify that you're a target of interest. I pack and inject an attack to take over your computer if you are an interesting target. And... If the FBI comes knocking, A, it's perfectly deniable COTS hardware. It's a hundred bucks, so they pull it from the wall and I don't care. And even if they know it's me as the DGSE or the Chinese or the Russians or the Brazilians or anybody but the Germans because they're too bloody polite about things, um, I just send back the poor State Department schlub a sheaf of Snowden slides detailing everything I did with, ha ha, you started it. So... Okay. I, uh, fair enough. I think that it, there's, you're, you're making the argument that this is ubiquitous and cheap as well as designed for perfectly good reasons and used for reasons you're not happy with. And, uh, your thought is, well, we can encrypt everything, but the only way to encrypt it is to use materials that are on the very computers that were just compromised by your air freshener. Um, except that if my computer only does encrypted traffic, the air freshener cannot identify me and cannot inject traffic. That's the world we are in. If you have unencrypted traffic visible to an adversary that identifies you as a valid target, that needs to be considered an exploitation vector. And I don't care whether it's some jihadist visiting Inspire through Tor or the U.S. State Department computer where an ad happens to be fetched from China. So, um, fair enough. Uh, the, the key then is to encrypt it to a level that makes it impossible to tell who's sending or receiving the messages. That's tricky. Uh, no, because TLS is fine for this okay, kind of so, stuff. So you, you, you see the handshake. That you see the handshake. The and you know the server. It's very hard to hide the metadata of server machine. It hides the metadata of person very well from passive observers. It doesn't hide the metadata from the service provider. So even in the case where they encrypt within the encryption, you still see the metadata at the so, service so the, provider. The, so that it, you're, you're envisioning a world in which the service providers are sort of a gating factor. If you want the metadata, you go to the, the, the ISP or the, the telco and you ask them for the metadata and they can provide that. They just can't provide the content and you think that's a compromise that works for law enforcement most of the time uh, and provides at least some basic privacy. Yes. So here's an example. Uh, some bad guys using uh, 
iMessage. Mm -hmm. Now, iMessage is opaque, but the it said bad guy sent 120 messages that were encrypted to a known jihadi overseas. That alone is a huge message. And yes, you don't know the content, but the metadata serves a very valuable purpose. Um, in fact, if anything, if I was law enforcement or national intelligence, I want people to use Signal and iMessage. And the reason why is because those are in the U.S., so I can get the metadata on demand. I don't want them using Telegram, not because Telegraph has good encryption. Their, their stuff is says awful. It's, it's terrible. It's all homemade and, and bad. But they're in Germany, which means there's high latency to get metadata. Right. WeChat. They're, uh, they're, if I remember right, they're a... Russian provenance company located in Berlin. Yeah, so but they're not friends other, with Putin. Th 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 that's right. The Putin bounced them essentially. Yeah, they're 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 uh, they're not friendly to Russia, but they, they you have to be friendly to your host country. But that's about it, which means you've got all the paperwork when you want to get metadata information. So, like, although Telegram just literally spreads metadata all throughout Telegram systems. The, the latency to get a request through Germany, that's the impediment. We don't want bad guys using, say, WeChat, because that's Chinese. Right. And, and the latency there is like forever. <laughs> forever is good for me. It's forever good for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this metadata arbitrage problem, I think, is actually bigger than the crypto problem. Because so every, everybody's going to pick the place that they think is least likely to attack them. There was, there was that famous piece of malware that checked the, uh, uh, the keyboard you were using. And if you're using a Ukrainian keyboard, it said, oh, never mind, I'm not going to infect you. And the inference was, well, these are guys in the Ukraine. They don't want to uh, 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 poop where they uh, sleep. So they have decided to say... Don't worry, this will never affect anybody in Ukraine, and that way they can be protected by law enforcement. There. And that's what you're going to see, I think, going forward on communication protocols, that bad guys in the U.S. will use WeChat, bad guys in China will want to use Signal. Okay, this is this is not a, a particularly good world, uh, uh, at least until uh, uh, we have a whole lot more cooperation with people who's, for whom the price of cooperation is going to be very high. So um, the other possibility, it seemed to me, and we talked a little bit about this, but I'd like to, to, to move to it, is, uh, um, you know, the Silicon Valley's business model increasingly, or at least Web 2.0's business model, is if we have enough people and enough data, there's bound to be money in it sooner or later, and mostly through through serving ads. Uh, um, and the... Enthusiasm for collecting information, even information you aren't sure is, is going to be useful about users is overwhelming in the ad context because that's what, that's the difference between them and TV. Uh, they can say, yeah, we can, we can sell you somebody who's 47 years old and lives in San Jose and, uh, uh has two dogs and a cat. And, um, if, if you want to serve an ad to somebody like that, we can, make sure that those are the only people who see it. Um, and it does seem to me that in the long run, none of that is going to be kept from government. If, as government figures out how all this works, they're going to ask, they're going to walk in with 
court orders saying, please tell us everybody who has used uh, the Mujahideen secrets uh, and uh, uh, recently overstayed their visa in the United States. Oh, well, the Mujahideen secrets, you can get off the wire. Whoever in the NSA came up with that program, <laughs> big thumbs up. I love that thing. It makes things so easy. You, it literally is one single query to find every jihadist on the planet. Thank you very much. Show me all the people. I, 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 I got Mujahideen no problem with that. Secrets. It's a good idea. Neither do I. Uh, but um, um, this, do you, do you, do you think I, that's where we're going? Yes, because it seems that there's actually two local maxima in Silicon Valley. Sell shiny stuff and sell people's souls. If you want to <laughs> sell shiny stuff, data is a liability and you want to protect it from you. And so the act uh, provider of shiny stuff is Apple, and that's why they have taken the position that they don't want this data, and if they have it, they want to encrypt it. In ways and you can really it. tell with HomeKit, because HomeKit is in many ways the first post-Snowden cloud API by a shiny things company, because it's designed to make it so Apple doesn't see a thing, right. but still gives you all the cloudy goodness of you can adjust your thermostat remotely. Um, while actually providing privacy protections. This is in sharp contrast to Nest, which is we collect all the data in the clear, and there's an asterisk on our privacy policy saying we won't sell this yet. Right. Um, and this is a huge problem. I've advocated to law enforcement of what info can you get on a target by a subpoena to Facebook and Google, not just their Facebook and Google activity, but all these ad views and page views. You can basically, Google and Facebook can reconstruct the average web user's entire browsing history. And they want to do that for advertising. Who can do that? Uh, uh, Google obviously runs an ad network, uh, and uh, I assume Facebook with their like button. Correct. Has, is there anybody else uh, that has that kind of uh, reach? Uh, LinkedIn has less reach, but it's interesting. Mm -hmm. um, more for the intelligence purposes rather than the law enforcement purposes. Uh, LinkedIn, God's gift to open source intelligence. Oh yeah, well, and, and I, you know, I know reporters who basically live off of LinkedIn. They just, uh, when they decide they're interested in a company, they just look up everybody from the, with that company's name in uh, LinkedIn and start calling. Um, anybody who can read Snowden documents, do keyword searches with. NSA program name site LinkedIn.com. Uh, yeah, it's right. amazing what you find. Christopher Segoyan does that for sport. Well, I, yes, I, I, he does a lot of stuff for sport. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've advocated to law enforcement people to this is how you should subpoena Google and Facebook to get all this information. Oh, nobody in Silicon Valley wants wants that, though. They, they're going to fight that pretty hard, aren't they? Oh, I want them to fight that because I – Silicon Valley spying actually worries me more than the NSA spying. The rest of the world worries me. The, the Silicon Valley worries me. And, in fact, if, uh, if you ever interview Alex Stamos from mm -hmm. Facebook mm – -hmm. Ask him, how do they handle Lovent in Facebook? Ah. I don't know the answer. I mean, how do they make sure that their employees are not spying Correct. on people who are engaged in uh, online sex? Correct. Because the amount of intelligence you can gather as a Facebook security employee on somebody is off the charts. 
Right. Well, then you can gather that about, you know, if you're the, if you're the steptoe security person, you can do love and, uh, if, assuming lawyers actually had love lives. Uh, anybody who has that kind of insight gets. Yes, but you have global, global perspective with Facebook that your steptoe security person has local access. Although, uh, this is a legal podcast. I'm going to make lots of enemies with this. I dread the day e-discovery people realize what's in an intrusion detection system log. Fair enough. Yeah, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. The, the, the good news about that, the only good news, is security also drives you toward um, radical uh, separation of network assets so that the days when you could just walk in and say, search this globally in your company are coming to an end, whether the courts will recognize that it's much harder than it used to be to do that, I don't know. Uh, uh, but I, I think it cuts both ways. Uh, um, so I, 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 I think you're, you're right that uh, uh, this is where the law enforcement Silicon Valley interface goes. Um, I do a lot of CFIUS work with foreign investment in the United States, and uh, the government has said, well, there are certain things like uh, uh, companies that sell telephone switching equipment that we just don't want the Chinese to play a big role in our industry, yeah. uh, and we're going to block Huawei from uh, making investments and making sales in that area. Which is fair enough. My attitude is, if you want to give the Chinese an easy time, you buy Huawei. If you want to give the NSA an easy time, you buy Juniper and Cisco. I, I uh, Once, uh, when I was at NSA, after the wall went down uh, and all of the Eastern European countries were looking for cybersecurity or for, for mm-hmm. communication security, uh, uh, one of them, which I won't name, came to the uh, U.S. and met with the director of NSA when I was there and said, uh, we're still using Russian security, <laughs> communications and security stuff. Uh, we stand naked before them. Uh, that's why we're here asking for communication security devices, uh, to which the uh, director said, would you like to stand instead naked before us? Uh, uh, and they said, well, we'll take that deal in a heartbeat. <laughs> Yeah, so, um, but my question here is, does this mean that we're going to see national security objections to Chinese ad networks operating in the United States? Or uh, uh, if the Chinese wanted to buy a, an ad network, an internet ad network, would that raise national security problems? I think their ad networks already have national security problems. It would be downright trivia to modify the Great Firewall or the Great Cannon to go, oh, this is an ad fetch from the State Department. Replace the reply with Malcode. Well, they can certainly do it if, if they if they go across the, the Great Firewall right. uh, to, to pull down stuff. They can inject anything they want, and they should be doing it that way if they're halfway uh, uh, intelligent about how they do stuff. Uh, they aren't that intelligent time. either. They did an in-path device when they could have just done the Great Cannon in half an hour. So I'm actually working with some people hoping to find uh, a way to develop an extension that would block... Uh, ad fetches from across the uh, um, uh, the firewall, precisely because that is an area of enormous vulnerability. Uh, it's not the only vulnerability, but it would be one that would be useful. Uh, uh, but you think, uh, in fact, this is a legitimate national security concern, because I guarantee you that very few people inside the government are saying uh, we need to be looking at acquisitions of ad networks. I think it is, but at the same time, the problem is, is we've 
spoiled our companies for the rest of the world. 702 is just, 702 is a direct assault on Silicon Valley. And if I was in Europe, let alone, Russia and China have reasons to balkanize for the, right. benefiting their own companies. But Europe is much more reluctant to balkanize. But 702 really calls for a balkanized internet. That if you're a European company or a European customer who is significant enough to qualify under that general national security blanket umbrella, a.k.a. you have enough money to be interesting to Google, right. you have to actually go out of your way and really start blacklisting some major U.S. companies, all the ones that are predicated on selling services. And it's not just Google and Facebook. But Amazon EC2, because let's face it, Amazon is a tech company that also sells some books. Um, isn't Salesforce largely cloud-hosted? Yeah, I think so. Salesforce is something that has to be on your no-go list. Um, there's just this huge swath of companies that you just can't trust in Europe anymore. So, uh, you know... Uh, Party like it's 1999. It sounds like because they, they'll never get past that if they aren't going to buy this stuff from uh, from somebody. And they got no local industry. Their their local tech industry consists of SAP and a bunch of people who sell malware to uh, loathsome regimes. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, and get lovely hacked. Thank you, hack whoever hacking hacked team? hacking team. I love that data. There's actually a case in their hacked emails where they saw Bill, a colleague, scan. One of their customers did. Pull the plug. Oh no, it's Bill. Oh wait, no, it's a global scan. Okay, it's safe. Turn all your stuff back on. <laughs> and this was Bill's scan for hacking team oh, servers. That's, that's hilarious. Uh, yeah, that's uh, there's there's uh, um, a surfeit of um, irony in that one. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I we come to the end. This is great. This was very lively and interesting, and just as I expected. Uh, Slightly orthogonal uh, um, to the usual debates. Uh, um, we usually ask our uh, guests if they've got any reports, blog posts, speeches, other things they want to promote uh, uh, to let our listeners know of things that you've got coming up. If you you got anything? Yes, I've got three. Okay. Number one. I post on Lawfare a fair amount. I basically piss off everybody by trying to have a nuanced view, which makes you no friends at all on any side. This is the Twitter world. If you can't say it in 140 yeah. characters, it is too complicated. Um, dumb your, your views also, down. Also, the, the other thing is, is on Lawfare, I am the guy who reads WikiLeaks and the Snowden documents, so you don't have to. Thank God. And, does. um, I love The Intercept because their reporting is so often horribly wrong, but they include the source documents so you can know why they're wrong. Usually, not always. They've started to get to, to say, trust us, we read the documents, and that is just not uh, not on with them. Yeah. Um, number two, um, I've got an upcoming talk at Usenix's Enigma conference in San Francisco okay. on my hobby system of building NSA surveillance systems in a box. I saw that you're, you're, you, 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 in a box. You could you could you could put it in uh, a book. I keep it in my lunchbox. Yeah. Um, it's the blue collar one. It's good for DC hotels. I've seen the Mayflower wiring closet uh, being Just open. Stick it in here. Yeah. Um, could have easily stuck it in there, 100 megabits, yeah. off the shelf. Took me 
took me about 40 hours to put together. It's now being assigned for homework for uh, undergrads at Berkeley. Okay, yes. we will definitely look for that. And, and the final one is any um, government offices. I'm in D.C. about two, three times a year. Um, NSF loves outreach. I can talk about Bitcoin. I can talk about cybersecurity. I can talk about lots of stuff that's research-focused. The, the National Science Foundation loves outreach, so if you're – DHS, DOD, whatever. Um, I am glad free, to free consultations because literally courtesy, courtesy of NSF. Yes. Oh, excellent. Because okay. they 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 love outreach. They love talks. Um, I'm doing a Bitcoin talk tomorrow over at uh, Justice Department, and I'm meeting some uh, some uh, DEA folks uh, the next day. All right. Well. <laughs> Hopefully not the guy who wanted to uh, monetize his access to uh, to Bitcoin. Uh, okay, well, thank you very much. I'm sorry Jason didn't get to talk to you about Bitcoin, but we'll uh, uh, put him in touch with you. Uh, so that has been Nick Weaver from the uh, uh, ICSI. International Computer Science Institute. Science. Uh, I, and um, uh, thank you also to Michael Vadis, Alan Cohn, and Maury Shank for joining us today. Uh, uh, the Cyberlaw Podcast is open to feedback. You can send your comments to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com uh, or call us at 202-862-5785 and leave a message. Uh, um, and uh, we uh, are always hopeful of getting good reviews on iTunes and the other podcast aggregators. So if you like the the, the show and you'd uh, uh, like to show appreciation in some other fashion than sending all of your personal data to Steptoe, uh, uh, go to iTunes and leave a review. Uh, this has been Episode 95 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up, we're going to be joined by Senator Tom Cotton, uh, uh, by um, uh, Assistant uh, Attorney General or Deputy Assistant Attorney General John Lynch uh, uh, in charge of computer crime and intellectual property. I'm guessing I won't completely agree with him. Uh, Glenn Gerstel uh, of the National Security Agency, the new general counsel there, will be joining us. And David Chris, uh, the author of the most uh, compendious uh, national security law volume um, that I've seen, uh, and the general counsel of Intellectual Ventures will be joining us. Uh, uh, we hope you'll come along as well as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.